Welcome to Hunt Gather Talk, the podcast of hunter, angler, gardener, cook. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and this time we are going to talk about indigenous foods. I am hooking up with a great chef in the Midwest named Sean Sherman. He bills himself as the sous chef, as in S-I-O-U-X. He is a Native American chef who has been focusing heavily on using only ingredients that were around before Europeans showed up. It's a fantastic interview, and we caught him on his back porch in Minneapolis. And we cover topics ranging from why you would want to limit your palate to pre-contact foods, to food as culture, to what does it mean to be a Native American chef in this modern day and age, to some nuts and bolts about what do you do with some of the ingredients that you'll find up in the upper Midwest, in the desert Southwest, in California, and in the East. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Sean. Welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am super happy to have you on. Thanks. Um, pleasure to be here. For uh, listeners who don't know, this is Sean Sherman. He is the sous chef. He is a great chef in – you're in Minneapolis now, right? Yep, that's correct. Because I, uh, I, I used to be a St. Paul resident, so there's a very big difference between St. Paul and Minneapolis, as Garrison Keeler will let you know every single week. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so Sean and I met each other in Red Lodge, Montana, of all places. It's a small town in what do you? It's kind of in the southwest corner, don't you think? Uh, no, it'd be the more south central, right above Yellowstone. South central. Yeah. Okay. Sean and I did a book dinner together for my tour for my first book, which is Hunt, Gather, Cook, back in 2011. Mm-hmm. At the that was at the Pollard, wasn't yep, it? Yep. Yep. It was one of the sh- most shocking dinners because um, I think I had zero expectations. Well, <laughs> I, I would understand that you're in the middle of, <laughs> middle of nowhere, but you know, a cool little spot, so. I don't even know how this that it even I can't even remember how it even happened and then so I show up and it's I think what do we sell like seventy five books or something it was like something crazy because it was like half the population of the town show yeah kind of yeah but it was a <laughs> it was a good event yeah you were already doing some of the stuff that you do now back then uh, and I remember you sent me home with a big jar of uh, chokecherry syrup which is pretty cool yeah yeah I had been um, already working on this plan for the work I'm doing now with indigenous foods so I had been um, spending a lot of time studying outdoors there and kind of you know getting my first feel for utilizing wild foods um, with the menus and stuff like that. I mean, you've been a hunter and an angler and a forager more or less your whole life, right? Pretty much. You know, we, I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, so we, we grew up hunting. We didn't have a lot of access to fishing where I grew up, but you know, I grew up with a gun in my hand pretty young age. Pine Ridge, actually, uh, that's funny. One of my all-time heroes in college was from Pine Ridge, a guy named Billy Mills. Yep, yep, totally. Yeah, he's the great uh, – he he is the remains the only American to ever win the 10,000 meters at the Olympics. Yeah, it's a pretty cool race if you watch it Watch it on the on the YouTube. We used to watch it over and over and over again before big races back in college because right. you know, I was a distance runner and it's like, oh my god, somebody actually friggin' won the 10K. <laughs> <laughs> Who wasn't like Hisham El Garouj or some, you know, Ethiopian. It was finally, you know, an American. It was, And then, of course, you know, you have to watch the – the uh, movie Running Brave, you know, yep. when you're 18. Yep. So that was too, super fun. And um, he actually lives out here, I think. I think he lives in, like, within miles of where I'm sitting here in, in, in Folsom, California, oh, which is cool. ir- ironic. So if, for those who don't know, um, Sean Sherman, you know, he's lots of chefs focus on different cuisines, different ways to cook. Sometimes you, it's methods, sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's ingredient. 
And so you're focusing on, and you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, you're focusing on indigenous foods, so pre-contact ingredients from the Great Plains, and and then you're taking modern takes on that set of ingredients, right? Yep. So basically what I did with my company, The Sous Chef, we started, um, we opened up in late 2014, and we focused just on this region here on Minnesota and, you know, from my region in the, in the Dakotas, but we wanted to showcase uh, indigenous Native American foods, um, you know, as authentic as possible. So removing all European ingredients as much as we could from them and just trying to figure out, you know, what makes up an indigenous food system? How can we utilize it in the modern day today in a culinary sense? So, you know, we've cut out things like flour, dairy, sugar, um, even beef, pork and chicken. So we just use a ton of wild game, fresh fish and just really looked at, you know, the history of what people used to grow on the Native American farming cultures and also just getting that really wide knowledge of wild foods in general, depending on whichever region you're in. I'm, I've been thinking about this, you know, for since we, you and I corresponded on the email. Like, it's occurred to me that's a pretty limited palette. I mean, if you're not going to include, you know, the farmed stuff from, say, the Southwest or from even the Ohio River Valley, like, because then you don't have flour, you know, acorn or corn flour or anything like that. Um, then you don't have tomatoes, you don't have peppers, you don't have... Do you have squash? I don't know. You know, it's a question of what what reached up to those groups up there. Yeah. So it was really just looking at that wave of agriculture that happened, you know, pre-contact before Europeans showed up. Um, And one of the um, best pieces of literature that I found that really helped me on my way was uh, called Buffalo Bird Woman's Garden. And it was an account of a Hadatsa woman growing up within North Dakota and they had been farming on the plains there for almost 1,500 years. So she details, um, basically, she's in her you know, later years, like in her 80s, and this is at the turn of the century. And they record you know, basically a season in the life of her garden, of how she farmed and gardened, uh, all pre, um, you know, pre-contact-wise, pre-European. So you know, she details how they built all the tools out of uh, antlers and you know, buffalo shoulder bone hose and things like that. And all the different seed varietals that they were utilizing, and we've also I've also been working with um, uh, the uh, Seed Savers Exchange out of Decora a little bit. Uh, oh yeah, I know those guys. I've been really kind of digging into a lot of some of the um, grains and ancient seeds that they have laying around because they have you know almost a thousand varietal varietals of Native American you know seeds that were that were from before. So just kind of mapping out, you know, pieces that were growing, but definitely like, you know, the farming culture on the plains was such a big part of the food system around here on top of this forest region where we were in this extremely rich wild rice region, you know, where all that really, the, you know, the true wild rice grows up all over the place, but also just looking at all of the foods that are out here, you know, all the tubers and all the greens and, you know, all the different spices and edible flowers and berries and fruits. So, you know, it seems really limiting, but it's actually not at all. There's a ton of food. Because when I first started, you know, thinking about what to do, I was kind of trying to design it around my heritage being Lakota. So I started studying that in particular. And since the Lakota had roamed so much, they had moved all the way from Minnesota, you know, out into that area that we were in, in uh, in Montana, you know, out to the Bighorns and, and beyond a little bit. So, you know, I realized there's so many different food systems throughout, you know, the indigenous cultures it just changes every few hundred miles wherever you go. You can just, you know, you can see it on a map, basically. 
So I just really had to hone it in. So when I moved back to Minnesota, I really kind of focused mostly on Dakota and Ojibwe style of foods, um, but also, you know, just the surrounding area a little bit because trading was a big part of the indigenous foods too. So it was really, yeah, it was really, which I think I'd, I think not a lot of many people know that actually as at how involved the native groups trading networks were. I mean, you know, you, cause a lot of it is hard to find archeologically, but every now and again, you'll find, you know, shells from the Gulf of Mexico up in, you know, South Dakota. Totally. It's not like nobody talked to each other. Yep, exactly. You know, neighboring tra- tribes would trade with other people. So, you know, I just kind of look at that, but mostly it was just, you know, bringing back this cultural cuisine that should be here. I live in uptown Minneapolis area where I could walk around the streets and find food from all over the world within a short, you know, few block radius, but, you know, no representation of the food that came from this area at all. So, you know, it was kind of on a quest just to change that notion um, because there were so many flavors and there are so many flavors of, you know, indigenous groups all across North America. So we're just kind of slowly, you know, beginning to format that and, you know, by cutting out and doing only pre-contact indigenous foods, you know, we're really able to kind of hold on to that authentic feel of it all. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I want to talk with you is because that whole, that self-limiting is really important as a chef because I live in Northern California where I like to say a semi-retarded chimp can do fresh seasonal and local. <laughs> you know, I mean, we we, bear, I, we had a frost three times that whole last year. Wow. So, I mean, there's something going on all the time, but just from a cook's perspective, it's a really interesting – it would just be an experiment for, you know, anybody else, but for you and, and for any – Native chef, God, I don't even know how many people are out there. Um, it's a it's a question of also sort of grounding yourself in your own culture. Where I was thinking about, I was reading your website, which I'll I'll put a link to in the show notes. But I was I was reading your website, and it's like, well, you know, it's funny. Part of the way we define each other as groups and people are by what we eat. Like I grew up in Jersey, right? right. So for me, part of being from where I'm from is to eat a Taylor ham egg and cheese sandwich with coffee regular in, in the morning. Right. And like Taylor ham is sort of one of those things that define my part of New Jersey, you know, there and a Jersey dogs, or there are certain sets of foods where no matter where they come from that, that divine us as us. And so many of the native groups that I talk with, and I, and mostly it's the West, uh, cause that's just where I live. Only the old people even know what they used to eat. All of the people my age and younger either don't know or don't care, and, I, and I'm really glad that you're you're trying to bring that back. Yeah, and you know it was a lot of work. It was a lot of digging through books and through history, and um, you know it just uh, you know the unfortunate part was just the oppression that happened to native tribes across you know North America in general. So it's really just trying to bring back that sense and that notion. And there are a lot of uh, good research out there already that I've been able to help you know utilized to help piece it all back together but the biggest piece was just practicing it was you know getting to know the world around me um, just through the wild foods and you know just practicing some real simple cooking techniques you know because this is kind of like the unmodernist cuisine where we're you know really just using a lot of fire and sun drying and you know simplistic pieces as we're cooking and just you know holding on to that really wholesome authentic feel all right so let's take a cook's perspective for a second yep if you if this is your palate Every cook needs an acid. Every cook needs a fat. Every cook needs, uh, you know, something like a flour. You know, so there, I know what I would use in your region, but it's not necessarily from the same palate. How do you get your? What is your 
pickling liquid or your acidic ingredient? What is your sugar? What is your, you know, what is your main fats? Because that's those fundamental building blocks define any group's cuisine, no matter where you're from in the world. And so what is it with your group? Yeah, you know, for, for me, like understanding salts, fats, and sugars, where it was an important part of trying to research and figure it all out. So where I am right now, it's easy because we have the maple sugar, you know, which is, you know, it lasts forever and it grows all around us. Um, and there's other trees that you can tap and cook down into sugar form also. Like birch, right? Exactly. And, you know, as far as acidics, you know, we just use a lot of berries for the most part. But, you know, there's also other plants like sumac or like rosehip that, you know, have that real kind of tangy citrusy quality to them that we're able to season foods with those pieces, too. And as far as salts, it was just kind of really looking and understanding across North America where, you know, older civilizations were gathering salts and how they were moving around and, you know, where they were coming from. Because they could be coming from mineral, they could be coming from uh, like saltwater springs that pop up all over here and there throughout the country. They could be coming from the coastal regions where, you know, you just, you're just processing seawater basically. Or there's even tons of plants out there, like you got the salt grass and you've got other plants that, you know, people would cook down into ash form and basically get the sodium from that point forward. So, you know, it's just, you know, really kind of looking at um, all sorts of different pieces and just kind of getting a larger picture, but then being able to apply it in my own region. So basically what I did was, you know, built a model of what an indigenous food system looks like and all the information that I need to have to understand it. And with that model, um, as we, as I travel around and talk to different parts of the of uh, North America, you know, I can sit down and you know research, and at least I know where to begin now because I can, you know, see that. So that that information is kind of what my my upcoming cookbook is going to be about is like understanding and utilizing an indigenous food system, so people can see how I played with it in my area, and they can pretty much apply it to any region that they want to. Cool. So you do have a cookbook in the works. Yep, it's going to be published through Minnesota, yeah, University of Minnesota Press next year. So we're almost done with the manuscript, um, and you know it's just really showcasing that, exactly that indigenous food system that I'm talking about, <clears throat> and how we did it here. But you know we just really see the value of other people, you know, really digging in and looking at their own regions to try to figure it out from from their own perspectives. They do good work. I have a, uh, a University of Minnesota cookbook that uh, a friend of mine who ironically lives in Sacramento, uh, it's a Hmong cookbook oh, cool. that, uh, that, that Minnesota did, and they did a great job. So Yeah, they're pretty excited it, about it, and we're pretty excited to uh, you know, have signed on with them. So, so tell me about salt. You know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, how would someone in South Dakota, in a Lakota, get salt? Well, um, again, from that text of Buffalo Bird Woman's Garden, um, they knew of some salt springs growing here and there um, along the Missouri River and also along the, I want to say it's the Red River, the one that separates Minnesota and North Dakota up north. Oh, yeah, Um, I fished sturgeon there. Yep, and they were able to um, basically just, you know, collect salt water from those streams and cook it down to basically a really salty tonic that they could use to season food with and it you know doesn't spoil or anything so that was one way and the other way was just do trade routes so trading you know because there's mineral salt coming from the east there's right you know salt coming from every direction also in the coastal regions it's easy because you have the the seawater but um you know it's a it's really interesting and as everybody needs salt and then some communities i found through that you know that process of nixmalizing and cooking things into ash form that some of the plants you know 
basically turned into a really high sodium content, so people were able to season foods with um, vegetable ash of different plants. Speaking of vegetable ash, there's um, mm-hmm. there's a plant called salicornia that I know as you know sea beans, and that's what the trade name is for it, and it's it's global and it grows all around the the sea coasts, but I was hunting ducks up in the in the Delta marshes of Manitoba, and it grows all over these alkali marshes inland. So it's this interesting. It's a salt plant that grows. If you can find yourself an alkali marsh, you can find it. And then what I do when I've got too much of it is you can dry it out and then grind the hell out of it, and you essentially make a green salt. It's pretty cool. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah, and then you know the region that you're in in Northern California, I've got an aunt who's a full Yurok, you know, from that area, and that that particular side of uh, North America is just so interesting because you know their food system was so different. They didn't have the agriculture, but you guys have food pretty much all year round, and their trading systems were pretty intense because it traveled all the way up to uh, up into Alaska. And they had currency systems back then, too. So there was a lot of stuff moving around that whole coastline up there. Yeah, I mean, when the when the white folks got there for the first time, they were, well, when the first trader, when the first guys like Jim Bridger and such show up, they're like, this is awesome. And because there was a zillion people there and they were just, you know, there's so much food and they're having a good time. When the people showed up the next time, no one was there. Totally. And it was, it was uh, I mean, I don't even know how you even... Like you read the stories from because I've read a whole bunch of of, uh, of stories from like the Miwoks and the and the the Maidu and such, which are the groups from my area. Yep. I don't even know how you'd process that because if you you know I've read a whole bunch of stuff about the Black Plague in the, in Europe, which that was worst case scenario, sixty percent of a population. And there were places in North America where it was ninety. Yep, totally. And I don't even know how. I mean, that's just. I mean, there's all kinds of things we could get into on that but but it's just i mean you talk about trying to resurrect a culture you lack even the 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 people to survive to be able to carry it on and how much really interesting knowledge on all topics was just lost yep and we have no idea like you know there's so much that was lost so even like in that again i keep referencing that book just because it's a it's just a great resource but yeah buffalo bird woman's garden she talks about how they had to um, join up with a Mandan group just because, um, you know, most of their population got wiped out from disease. So they had to like, you know, create, you know, come together and, you know, get over old arguments and, you know, become a strong, a strong society within amongst themselves again. But, you know, and for me, it's not, I'm not really trying to look like deep back into ancient history to pull back this cuisine. Because since I grew up um, with a Native American family um, on Pine Ridge Reservation, I'm a member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe. Um, this is just the you know the food of my great grandfather's generation. Because my great grandfather grew up on the plains with the Lakota, and he wasn't it wasn't until he was in his 20s before he was forced onto the Pine Ridge Agency. So like my grandfather's generation, they were the first group of kids that were kind of being forced to assimilate. You know, go to schools, go to churches, cut their hair. And, you know, being forced to kind of move away from their own culture. So I'm just looking back a couple generations. And for me, like, you know, food is really the center of your cultural identity. So it doesn't matter, you know, what your heritage is. You kind of look back at your grandparents and your great grandparents. And, you know, some of those foods that come from your family histories are really kind of parts of you that really make you and identify you. 
what are some of the ones that you have in your research come across and say, whoa, I mean, I wish more people knew about this. I mean, you know, you'll, you'll dig up some either preparation or ingredient or finished dish from that period you're talking about, and then it was a revelation. There's got to be something out there, right? You know, there's just, so it's just real simple foods, you know, so it was a lot of pres- preservation uh, techniques, especially in the region that I'm in, but you see it all over, you know, all the way down into Mexico. You know, there was, uh, the food systems were very similar in a way because you're cooking without petroleum, you're utilizing the sun, and you're utilizing fire, and you're utilizing wood and clay and things like that. Um, you know, so for me, where we are with this, where we get a lot of really heavy winter, you know, people had to jump onto the growing season so fast and just grab things as they came through. So I think really it's just getting, for me, it's just getting to know the plants again, getting to know, you know, the purpose of all the plants too. And not just like the berries, but like, you know, the whole plant has purpose, like just like they would break down animals where every piece would be utilized. It was the same way with plants. So for me, is that the ethnobotany side of everything has been, you know, the most rewarding and it's probably going to be a lifetime worth of learning, you know, as I move forward. So, you know, but it's really cool to see some old recipes of just, you know, drying out bison, mixing it with berries and making basically like a pemmican or wasna and then finding other recipes where they would um, pack that into intestine and basically make a sausage and then smoke it. And then that way they could just, you know, it, carry it around, chop it up, throw it in a soup. It's kind of like having a ton of like instant soup ingredients on hand because it's just a bunch of dried, you know, roots and um, seasonings and meats and berries and a whole bunch of cool stuff to play with. So when we first started playing with this food, you know, I kept trying to do things like I was cooking uh, European style foods. I kept wanting to add binders to things and, you know, over season things. And, you know, it really um, it just, you know, after I figured it out, it was just really keeping everything so simple. Like you don't need too many ingredients in, in anything and you just kind of let the food do what it's going to do. Um, but, you know, just learning how to preserve it first and um, in a real simple method and kind of utilizing those flavors. So it's kind of really just like, you know, trying to figure out what were in those old pantries, like what were people storing away? Because those were the flavors I was that were going to be there all year. Those are the flavors I was really looking for. I'm thinking right off the top of my head, if I was up there, I would be gathering wapato to no end. Yep. I would be making acorn flour. Yep. Um, I would be I would be gathering shitloads of cattail pollen. Yep. Um, obviously, you've got jillions of berries. Um, yep. And but I mean, it start. I mean, the way I describe it always is that the, the forager's dilemma is starch, and you happen to be in one of the easiest places in the world from a forager's perspective to develop starch because you've got wapato, which is also called duck potatoes or arrowhead and you've got wild rice. And I still like everything. I just ordered five pounds of actual uh, wild rice that has been, you know, parched the old traditional way because it's just so much better than the store-bought stuff. Well, it's not that the, you know, the black wild rice is that patty rice where they, you know, they cultivated it so they could grow it and combine it and all and grow. Yeah. Here, here in California. Exactly. (laughs) But you know, the rice that grows wild on the lakes, you know, a lot of the tribes still have, you know, all the rights to it. So they still go out there with the canoes and it's just a two man crew. You know, they got one guy paddling the canoe and one guy with two knocking sticks and they'll just, you know, pull the rice grass over and knock it and all the rice falls in the boat and they'll yeah, after it's all I buy it from the I buy it from the red yeah. lake. And people that really know that rice can see all the differences because it's all, you know, slight varietals of colors, you know, everything's from light yellows to dark browns. 
Um, and people can really, who know the rice, can really tell, you know, which area of Minnesota, Wisconsin that rice is coming from. So it's pretty cool stuff. But, you know, on the plains, you know, for starches, we also had a lot of, well, we had Timsala was like one of the biggest crops, just like uh, Camas was in the Pacific Northwest area there. Because it was just, you know, a wild turnip that grew everywhere. And, you know, for I was just going to mention prairie turnips. Yeah, yeah. So for <laughs> Lakota and Dakota and Cheyenne and Rapo and, you know, all the plains tribes, like, Timsala was such a super important starch that, you know, was just so prolific and all over the place. And it, it still is, but a lot of the crops got damaged um, just from farming and ranching. And also, you know, people forgetting how to um, harvest things sustainably. So, like, you knowing when to, you know, gather it after it seeds. So, you know, it continues to grow further on, you know, in the same spots. So, you know, people just, you know, aren't harvesting things the way, um, you know, a lot of the native tribes really took a lot of care into it, you know, to make sure things were growing really well in those regions again. Well, you kind of have to know the plant. Like Camas and Camas is a great example of that. Like I, Camas is a, 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 it's a pretty blue flower, but it's got a great big corm, essentially, that looks a little bit like an onion. And it's fantastic. I mean, you have to slow cook it. Otherwise, you get the, you get the mighty wind. (laughs) Um, <laughs> same thing with Jerusalem artichokes. Yeah. I harvest it once a year from a spot that I know of, and I'm pretty sure nobody else has ever even seen this spot. And I've been harvesting it pretty judiciously for 10 years now up in this alpine meadow. It doesn't look anything different from when I first got there. So, you know, I mean, everybody knows the, the saying, don't eat your seed corn. Um, but I think, you know, and this is where we get into commercial foraging versus foraging just for you you can there's a slippery slope where you can easily mess up the environment like with your turnips your prairie turnips those things take three or four years sometimes to get the size of a of a uh, tennis ball which they will exactly but you can't do it every year right yeah and it's just a lot of things you know ramps you know for example people always take that one for granted and they just pull up the whole thing but you know if you leave the bulb in the ground it'll just split but that plant itself will take you know six or seven years just to hit the seed you know, to seed again. So you have to be really careful with, you know, harvesting and, you know, just, you know, the, the green tops are flavorful enough and it's fine to take a few bulbs, but you don't have to like, you know, clear cut a whole region of it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, the old term is stick and move, you know, like with ramps, you do actually want to dig some because yep. they get so clumped together, they, they stunt. Yep. So you find a spot where it's at, you dig those bulbs, and then that gives room for the new, and then they have those little bulblets on the outside of the uh, the bigger bulb that you leave in the ground. Yep. And, you know, it's these little things that, um, you know, and it's it's funny, you know, I, I'm just now thinking on the fly here, where do we know these? Like, is this... Does it come from the European foraging tradition, the native foraging tradition, or both? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of both. It's really just about knowing the plants, like you said. Um, And I think for a lot of Native American tribes who really practiced, you know, a true form of sustainability, um, and and they really were taking a lot of care with a lot of those permaculture pieces and making sure that they seeded before growing back and, you know, not taking everything, leaving some for the animals and from the earth and everything like that, too. So it's just a, you know, a different perspective. But, you know, you read about the Camas Wars with the Nez Pierce in the Northwest and, yeah. you know, you see, like, it's the same story. You see it all over the place. <laughs> we used to have the same thing here, um, with the the uh, Miwoks and the Maidus, because every now and again you'll get this big ass valley oak, which is a it's a it's a variety of a white oak, which has very low tannins, 
And every now and again, and they're huge, they're, they're way bigger than eastern oaks, and you'd get one that would drop a ton, like literally a ton of, of acorns with no tannins in them. And so you know, group A would say, no, nah, that's my tree, and group B would be like, uh-uh, that's my tree, and they'd go, you know, they'd have essentially rump. I mean, they weren't very big groups, so they'd have <laughs> effectively rumbles over those trees, right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and with the work that we're doing and just getting people to rethink, especially on the, on the native tribal regions, um, you know, because there's, there's still a lot of poverty out there um, in the tribes, especially where, out here where we're at. Um, but, you know, getting people to really know their region again and really know those plants because they can harvest stuff all year round and you know by opening up food businesses like we're getting ready to you know we're opening up economic doors for people to sell more indigenous products um in a sustainable way of course and also just opening up demand for you know more of the agricultural goods especially i mean that we see throughout most of north america um i know i was talking with seed savers a couple uh, months ago, and one of their oldest corn seeds was actually from Canada, which is you know Who knew? interesting. So, but yeah, just looking at that that wave of agriculture as it traveled northwards, and you know, thinking about all the other food systems, you know, how nixonization of foods followed that way, and all of that kind of stuff. So, growing up on the reservation for me, it was kind of you know looking at a lot of these echoes of the past that were still there. Um, and strong and just kind of deciphering it little by little, you know, as they went forward. So I think nowadays with the work that we're doing, we're, you know, just making just healthy, simple foods, but we're able to bring a lot of people along the ride with us. I know in the Southwest, two of the things you just said, well, one is that in the Southwest, it's, this has gotten a lot farther along. You know, you see like the Tohono O'odham, yeah. you know, they've got that awesome website where you can buy, um, you know, all of the seeds and all of the the agricultural products from the desert southwest. And, and the other thing that you just mentioned about health is that down there, there's a very strong push for uh, indigenous people to eat more indigenously because your your systems are more suited to it. So if you eat fat and sugar, you you know, and, you know, the, and the concept of the thrifty gene is a little controversial, but there's some evidence for it and some evidence so, not for exactly. it. Exactly. Um, but it's it's absolutely certain that if an Apache eats what Apaches ate before we showed up, they're healthier. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there's if that movement has shifted north for where you are. Yeah, you know, we're all kind of a part of the same movement a little bit with this indigenous food kind of happening here and there throughout the country. So, you know, there's pockets of movements happening all over North America, even up into Canada and all the way down and through Mexico, too, because we just kind of look at North America as a whole. And just, you know, see all this indigenous culture that thrived, you know, all over the place. So not really looking at those lines. But, you know, the biggest part with this food is the health aspect, because basically, you know, what it's doing is just dropping that glycemic scale so low again on the foods that, you know, can combat a lot of these health problems that we see uh, heavily on especially Native American uh, communities. So things like type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, you know, even tooth decay. You know, all these symptoms and ailments weren't there before people were removed from their food system. So it's, you know, bringing back this traditional knowledge through food. And, you know, it can be extremely beneficial for health for all sorts of people. You know, you don't even have to be Native American to reap those benefits. For sure. it's I call it the curse of the fry bread. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. 
Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, Navajo tacos. Like, dude, don't you realize that that shit's all Spanish? <laughs> right. Well, you know, we've been open for over a year and a half now, and we haven't, with the sous chef, haven't, we haven't made one single piece of fry bread because, you know, it's just not part of the food system that we're promoting. And, you know, fry bread tastes good. It's great. I grew up with it, but, you know, it was never traditional. It was oppression food, basically. You know, it's what the most you can make out of government subsidies of, you know, fat, lard, salt, sugar, flour. <laughs> Really? I didn't know that. I think that's another piece to all of this is that uh, I come at this whole topic from an ethnobotany standpoint because I'm a forager. And if you are a forager in North America and you want to learn really the best knowledge there is, the best ways to find it in a book form is – Lowell, you did mention that the the Buffalo Bird Woman's book, which I need to buy. Yeah, it's awesome. But, But through ethnobotanies. And you learn a ton. I mean, I'm looking at my bookcase, and I've got maybe 30 of them yeah. sitting on my bookcase. Yeah, you, and you guys have like Nancy J. Turner out of Victoria up there. Oh, yeah. Like she has just volumes and volumes of work. And, you know, out here with the group that was working with Buffalo Bird Woman, you know, they recorded a whole bunch of stuff. It was the Wilson Brothers. And, you know, I work with the Minnesota Historical Society, and they have a ton of uh, – artifacts and just you know access to a lot of those old writings and books too but yeah there's so much great work out there on the ethnobotany side of things that i had to utilize to like figure out the work that i'm doing so you you've got i mean you've been doing this now pretty solid for five or six years right yep. what are you finding uh, are, are the most popular stuff that you do because you've got the food truck now and you're, are you still working on a, bu- a bricks and mortar restaurant? Yeah, we're actually um, just on the cusp of releasing our Kickstarter to raise funds to try to open up this first indigenous kitchen. Um, you know, later this year, hopefully early next year. The food truck, uh, we it's called Tatanka Truck, which Tatanka is bison in Dakota. Um, but the food truck was a project that we worked on with the Little Earth community of United Tribes, which is kind of like the native urban community within Minneapolis. So they're not really like a tribe. They're just like a a, a native housing area. So we developed the food truck with them to, you know, help bring jobs to that area. um, Just bring the knowledge of working with traditional indigenous foods, uh, especially to youth, hopefully. It's kind of the hope. And then also opening up those doors of being able to purchase from, you know, a lot of the areas around us. So we buy like all of our walleye and northern and um, trout and things like that from one of the lakes up north at the Red Lake Reservation. We buy all of our wild rice from native tribes, maple sugar. We work really closely with a couple of native-run farms that are growing out a lot of cool old varietals of, you know, just agricultural pieces like um, Hadatsa shield beans, Arikara yellow beans, Dakota sunflower, Lakota squash, and just like all these cool old seeds that have just been around for a long time. So just tons of varieties of corn, beans, squash, sunflowers, and even some melons. So there's just a ton of cool food all around us. But I, you know, I think really my push is really going to be right now working on getting these businesses open because I think it's going to be really important for you know people to start to see Native American restaurants and indigenous restaurants that are showcasing the foods of those particular regions. Because if there were restaurants opened up that were you know, indigenous and feel all across the United States, people would really see the true diversity of all these food systems we have everywhere. And I know you see it because you work with wild food. So you, you know, you understand the regions, you know, and I think other people would really start to see the value of, you know, this cool uniqueness that they have of their own areas. What are you finding that, the, you know, the average Joe here, you know, in Minnesota that you serve, 
what can't you take off the menu? I mean, what is, uh, what are, oh, sure. Um, yeah, I kind of got away from that question, but, um, so, you know, on the food truck, we have things like bison, rabbit, um, duck, turkey, you know, just some staples like that. We do lots of corn. We, since we're not using any sodas or anything like that, our one beverage is just a tea made out of cedar and maple. Um, so just, you know, flat cedar frond and, um, Dude, you couldn't give them a berry juice? <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty awesome. Like, it's super flavorful. It's awesome hot or cold. And, you know, we do special teas on occasion depending on what it is. So we've done, you know, different berries and different other different uh, wild flavors and stuff like that. But, you know, I think, of, you know, for us where we're at, wild rice is the, probably the most popular um, on top of bison. So we do cedar-braised bison where we'll just let it, uh, you know, basically stew for about, 12 to 14 hours at a really low temperature, you know, with just a couple of seasonings like cedar and a little bit of maple and a touch of salt and that's it. But it just, you know, it comes out fall apart and caramelized and awesome. You got to be real judicious on that cedar. Otherwise your bison's going to smell like hamsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got it down pretty well now. <laughs> I bet. I think the most famous, you know, Indian food that I would like a typical Joe is going to know, other than this fry bread shit, is uh, is the tonka bar. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You can get them all over the country, and I I, I love them so much that I actually reverse engineered them <laughs> for my uh, my next my venison cookbook sure. that comes out on uh, on September first, and with a with a due hat tip to the actual real tonka bars. But if you don't, if you're if you're listening out there and you don't know what they are. Um, it's essentially like a modern pemmican energy bar with bison, and I think they use cranberries. Um, yeah, they have quite a few different flavorings out there. So, um, and it's they're really good. Yep. And it's like it's like kicked up jerky. Yep. And they're based out of my, my reservation, so they're based out of Kyle, South Dakota, which is just you know a few miles from where I grew up. What else do you see? Like, what's the what? I mean, you got to be thinking big at some point. Like, all right, at some point, everybody's going to want this because it's just too good for people to not pass up well you know i think our focus has really just been showcasing the regionality of native american foods and getting people to really understand that there's so many different cultures and tribes and food systems out there that it's really just kind of looking inward at the area around you so you know are are you closer to the sierra nevadas is that where you're at right now um yes i'm actually i'm in the foothills okay so we were out there in nevada city last summer and we did six courses of you know all wild foods uh with alicia funk uh, oh, I know Alicia. Yep, and you know it was fun. Just and we just you know did it based kind of on the tribes that were in that region. So we used a lot of acorn and stuff. But we do that all over wherever we travel. And now that we kind of have this model of what builds up an indigenous food system, we can bring it with us. So even places like Ohio, where like all indigenous peoples were forcibly removed from that area, we could still figure out what the food systems are because the food systems never went anywhere. You know, people got moved around, knowledge got lost. But all the pieces are still there to, you know, put it all together and be able to do something with. So we just really feel like people should really get to know, um, especially the plants in their own area. But, you know, just really look at what grew well in their region and, you know, what are the flavors that really kind of make them different from the other regions. I got I got your your big idea. Wapato chips. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't fried Wapato chips, they're like you will never if you. Don't ever put them on your menu because you will never ever be able to take them off. They're the greatest. <laughs> yep. They will they will replace French fries as America's favorite fried thing. Yeah, we just did a whole bunch of uh, hopness chips not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've done those too. Actually, Wapato is easier for me to find because um, there's a big uh, big farm up in Oregon 
that has a huge swamp with a lot of sedentary uh, um, latifolia, which is the big giant knobs. Uh-huh. I don't know if you guys have that one or not. There's a bunch of different species of it, but these things can be as big as the palm of your hand. Oh, nice. Yeah, we've got a bunch, especially along the St. Croix. I see a ton of it growing, but you see it all around the lakes and stuff. It's it's around for sure. Do you know Sam Thayer? Um, I haven't met him, but I know of him. Yes, of course. Sam's a good egg. He's up in uh, in uh, rural Wisconsin, and his books um, are just phenomenal yeah, I, I've, process books yeah. for the ingredients that you're working totally. with. Totally. I've utilized his books a ton. And I know he holds a, a lot of cool events over the summertime and stuff like that. So I know I'm sure I'll cross paths with him someday. I think what's interesting, at least from my research of, you know, North American native plants is – you know, like we've been talking about a little bit, is the, is the cuisine of the native groups is pretty simple. It's the ingredient preparation that I find the most fascinating. To so like, you know, how to make acorn flour, for example, or how to how to get something good out of something that may not be necessarily uh, obviously good. Like anybody knows how to eat a berry for the most part. Yeah. But you know, what are tell me about a time where you like, huh? Is that really worth my effort? No, well, I mean, I don't. You know, food systems were never meant to be easy, and it, you know, it takes a lot of people to, you know, get all those flavors and pieces again. So it was, you know, there's a ton of respect that goes into how much time and effort it took to process these foods and to, you know, dry out these foods. And you know, I have all these photos of like uh, um, Dakota women slicing up squash, and like every slice is just perfect, you know, and they're using super rudimentary tools, and you know. It's just really crazy, like how much work went into processing the amount of food that they got. But once you got it, then you have it for a long time. You have it preserved. You're able to, you know, just keep it as it is, pound it into flowers, add it to things, make cakes out of it, you know, do all sorts of things with it. So, you know, I just, I think it's really cool to take the time to learn how to really, you know, understand the food and figure out what's going on with it. Like we just got a bunch of, uh, teosinte grain, teosinte grain from um, Glenn Roberts from Anson Mills. Um, mm-hmm. Teosinte, if you're not familiar with it out there, is uh, is what corn used to be. Yep, and it's super cool. And you know, we're just experimenting with it. So you know, we tried just uh, boiling the grains to see what happened. We tried pounding the grains to in powder form, and then cooking it with that way to see what happens. You know, popping the grains just like you would do with amaranth or wild rice or something or popcorn or whatever, and then drying that and grinding that and seeing what that flour does. Um, and just, you know, messing with it in a whole bunch of different ways to kind of figure out, you know, what's the best method and like what would have some of these older cultures probably have done with it in a real simplistic fashion to be able to utilize it to its biggest potential. So, um, you know, it's just fun to be able to have those tools in the belt to try to figure out what to do with it. So tell me about a time where you went through all of that process you just described and said, well, that's nice, honey. Let's never do that again. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of that will come down to like taking the time to clean and then dry and then process into flour. And then, you know, just it's just so much time and effort to get to certain points. Well, which one is it? Um, you know, I don't think sunchoke flour really turned out that well. I think, uh, I don't think especially when sunchokes are good. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I would go through that whole process of, you know, drying it all out and turning it into flour and then trying to make a cake out of it from that point forward, where you could basically just boil it and mash it and grill. It. Right. <laughs> so for me, it was uh, I, I I read Yule Gibbons and all everybody's oh yeah you can make flour out of cattails rhizomes I'm like. <laughs> Oh my God, what a massive pain in the ass. 
Like, like, and plus it has no flavor at all. Like none. Right. That's pure starch. It has no flavor. So like, I like the pollen. I like the little, um, the little growing shoot things. Yeah. Cause those are kind of crunchy and nice, like a jicama. Yeah, totally. But, but the, the rhizome flour, you know, you can have it. Oh man. Yeah. It takes forever <laughs> to process and dirty work too. You know, but um, another thing that's interesting, do you guys have uh, Kentucky Coffee Berry where you live? I don't believe so. I haven't come across it's, it up here. Because it's one of the very, I mean, one of the holy grails of um, of looking for, you know, wild sourced stuff is a coffee-like beverage. And, you know, you've got Yaupon, which is down in like Florida and the Gulf states, and that's the only caffeinated plant in North America. And it's uh, it's a it's a it has the awesomely name is name in Latin Ilex vomitosa. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have too many of it, you know what happens. <laughs> uh, but out here we've got California coffee berry, and it's damn good. Makes an unbelievable coffee, but it has no caffeine. So that's been my limiting factor. So I tend to cut it with actual caffeinated coffee, but. You know, and you guys up there, you've got Lab Tea. Labrador Tea is a big one. Yep, that's a huge one. Uh, There's a ton of that around. So, what's Lakota Red Bull? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a tough one. You know, I mean, I I love coffee, and it's about as colonial as you get. You know, when it comes to food practices. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> um, so that's a it's a tough one to substitute with anything else because that just kind of is what it is. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't even know where to start. Where which which roots or plants would be cooked down to kind of give you that feeling? So because you know dandelion is chicory, those are European too. Yep, exactly. And you know that's an interesting one because people always ask me because like you know where do I draw the line with foods and with timing of foods? And like I said, I was just looking at my great grandfather's region, which was just you know turn of the century basically, um, late eighteen mid mid to late eighteen hundreds to the turn of the century. But, you know, pieces like dandelion, we don't know for sure how long ago it came across in Minnesota. If it was, you know, 300 years ago or 1,000 years ago, it's hard to put an exact date on that stuff. But, you know, typically some of these pieces were here before some of the newer tribes, you know, popped up in these areas. So we just tend to look at the plants, even if they are had been introduced, but just look at them through an indigenous eye and indigenous uh, way just because, you know, figuring out is it edible, is it medicinal, is it uh, utilized in some way, can you make rope out of it or something, like, you know, everything has purposes to it, so it's, you know, for us, it's really kind of taking that point of view on plants, even if they are introduced. Are you, do you still get any chance to hunt and fish, or are you, are you too busy? I really haven't been um, the last couple of years of this, you know, this business has kind of taken off pretty well, so I haven't been out there. My um, family out in Montana hunts a ton. My little brother hunts a lot. So, um, and there's a lot of fishing of course up around here, but, um, I think for a little bit further down the road and for me, like it, I've been really into the farming and uh, the gathering pieces. So I've been spending a lot of my time when I can just outdoors, you know, searching and, you know, finding and getting, getting to know the flavors and, um, just growing in that aspect. Are there any, like, we mentioned the Tahona O'odham before in the desert southwest. Are there any place up in your neck of the woods where if somebody wanted to order or buy seeds or whatever or agricultural products that are from the native plants in that area? Because this is this sort of gets into what we were talking about before also about foraging and overforaging is 
if you can get somebody's farmed, you know, or privately raised wapato, for example, um, as opposed to taking it off of public land, that's viewed by many as a as a better way of obtaining this. And it's just in the desert southwest, there's a system in place where you can do that. And I don't know if that's the case up where you live. Um, you know, there's just some there's some good work coming on. You know, like the Oneida tribe on the other side of Wisconsin, they grow their their heirloom Oneida white corn. Um, and they do a lot of cool stuff with it over there. Um, there's a nativefoodnetwork.com. Um, my friend Dan has like a mobile food truck basically where he just packs it full with Native American products and drives it around to different areas so people can purchase it. But, you know, they can buy from their website. We've got Winona LaDuke, who's kind of a um, – Didn't she run for president? Yeah, she ran for vice president under Ralph Nader in the Green Party. If That's right. Um, so she's, you know, she's well-read. She's I think she's a – Yale graduate or Harvard graduate, I can't remember, but she's written quite a few books and she's just been a big, um, you know, she's been fighting the oil pipelines basically as of late. So she has a, her group's called Honor the Earth, um, but her, she also has another um, business called Native Harvest and they have a whole bunch of, you know, cool things you can order online. So, you know, wild rice from the White Earth Reservation and some maple syrup and um, sometimes some hominy and uh, from the flint corn and things like that. Um, there's a ton of CSAs around here, and a lot of them have been implementing a lot of the wild foods as of late the last few years too. So we're able to find a lot more, you know, just cool foods that are just growing naturally on the grounds of their of their farms and gardens. So there's a lot of, there's a lot out there, and I think we're going to see more and more as we move forward. Cook to cook. You know what's what's jazzing you right now? What's what are you experimenting with in the kitchen? What do you, you know? I mean, like for me, I'm 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 working on wild beers at this point. Right. So I'm I'm trying to incorporate acorns into a into a nut brown ale, and a, and I'm thinking about that California coffee berry and and putting that into a porter, and so that that's kind of where I'm you know drilling down and being obsessive right now. What's what's lighting your fire? You know I've. Just been um, playing with nixmalizing other pieces than just corn just to see what the process does to different stuff. Because um, I kind of had an epiphany moment on it. Because um, growing up, we used to make uh, soap out of, uh, uh, what's that yucca called that's out there? It's all over South. Spanish Spanish bayonet? Uh, maybe. I, I can find it. But it's a, it's a yucca that grew all over um, Pine Ridge Reservation, Badlands area when I was growing up. And um, common, there was a common name for as soap weed, but you know, it's just a yucca, but, um, basically, you, you know, you get that by utilizing that nixtamalization process of, you know, cooking it in some, or making an alkaline base and, you know, breaking it down from there. Um, so, you know, nixtamalizing wild rice to see what it does, nixtamalizing that teosinte to see what it does and, you know, just playing with, playing with it that way. But, you know, also as we're getting ready to, well, we're raising money for the restaurant by kicking out this Kickstarter in just a matter of days now. But, you know, just developing this menu that's going to be you know, way more focused than the food truck, which was real simplistic. But, you know, just really trying to keep it seasonal and regional and utilizing as much indigenous product as possible. But also opening up the doors a little bit so we can experiment with some other indigenous areas because there's so much cool stuff. Um you know, I lived in Mexico for a while on the Pacific Ocean, and there was a group called the Huichole. And, um, you know, just looking at the foods that they're um, processing and thinking about their indigenous food systems. And, you know, there's just so much opportunity out there throughout all of North America to really play with. So I think there's just so much excitement in general to, you know, figure it all out. So it's just going to be, you know, a ton of 
ton of work and playing to for the pretty much the rest of my life. I knew you couldn't resist using tomatoes and peppers. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's got to come around. And, you know, and I'd love to bring other native chefs around because there's a bunch of other great chefs out there around the country. There's not a ton of us out there, but there are a few uh, really talented native chefs doing some cool work out there right now. So I'd love to have a place to you know bring them and showcase them and you know help them along with their careers and you know kind of go from there. What does happen when you nixtamalize wild rice? Because I know you can malt it. Um, you know, it didn't do. To, it made it a little bit more starchy for the most part, and slightly more salty because I didn't add any salt to it. But uh, I'm just experimenting with the best ways to figure it out. So it's it's definitely an experiment. You know, we're just going to keep trying and see what we come up with. I don't know if you're interested, but like I said, you can malt it and make a beer out of it. That's cool. <laughs> I haven't tried that. No, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it, you need a ton of it. So I mean, you'd have to be, you know. Connected be like Lakota or something to get that much. <laughs> well, I you know last time I was down in Mexico, I um, brought some sotol with me, which is you know from a different agave plant. Uh, that's not the, or it's a different desert plant. It's not the, uh, it's not the blue agave and it's not the mezcal plant. Um, but sotol, you know, you could probably make a South Dakota tequila slash sotol slash mezcal with that awesome agave that grows all over the place up there. <laughs> Yeah, they're not that big, are they? They're, they're a little big, but they grow all over the place. And looks, like, and I don't think they take that long to mature. So no, I, no, I've I've worked with them. Yeah, so I think it would be kind of a fun uh, fun experiment to see what you can come up with. You can pickle those uh, the the flower stalk before it gets uh, yep. too woody too. Yep, yep, those are cool. Hey, did it? I mean, in your research, I didn't. I don't get any sense that the that the Indians pickled anything. You know, uh, fermentation has been a really elusive one, um, and it's been a really tough one to find. But I did find that you know, besides the Aztecs who were who had figured out that uh, you know the agave basically um, turned itself into um, or fermented itself before it died in its old age. Um, that the uh, there's tribes in the southwest that were also making wines out of like saguaro syrup and stuff like that. Oh, that's right. And then yeah. also on the Pacific Northwest, through Nancy Turner's work, uh, I found out that people were um, fermenting things like uh, like packing seal belly and then fermenting it, and then also fermenting <laughs> uh, seaweed and fish eggs. <laughs> um, have you ever had stink heads? No, I never have. Please don't ever just trust me. Don't don't go near <laughs> well, them. Well, it's just such a you know I've, I'm always keeping my eyes open for any piece of fermentation going on because some things just happen automatically. Like you know if you leave maple syrup out too long, it's definitely going to ferment. Or watching the crab apples, you know things like that. Like so, you know it has to be out there a little bit. I know. I like how can there not be an Algonquin maple wine? <laughs> right. Like don't you know doesn't it doesn't it seem like it would be unnatural? You would think so. So I just keep my eyes open as I'm digging through any historical facts and you know, trying to find any reference points to them. So but, you know, we we know in the modern age what we can do with it. And then, you know, there's salt fermentation too, like the the brine pickles too. Yeah. That's so but I haven't found any of that either, but it has to have happened here It has to. I mean it just makes sense. Yep, exactly. Know? So you never know. Maybe we'll figure it out someday. You know, somebody will find something, like somebody talk to somebody, and it's in a journal somewhere. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's, it's kind of how a lot of this stuff happens. Yeah, and it's just, you know, digging through those keywords and seeing what you can come up with. Before we go, what is the Kickstarter for, and when does the Kickstarter start? The Kickstarter is going to be for our restaurant, which will be called The Sous Chef, um, and I believe it will be it's titled the Ind- an, an Indigenous Kitchen. 
Um, and we're hoping to get this first model built here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area um, late this year, early next year, and then use this as a model to either partner with or open on our own similar restaurant concepts that really focus on, you know, regional areas, you know, throughout different areas of the United States. When does the Kickstarter start? Uh, we're hoping to release it hopefully by this weekend. It's almost there. We've got the video uh-huh. ready. We've got the everything set up. So we're just going to submit it, and hopefully the Kickstarter crew will pass us through, and we'll be live in no time. Perfect. So by the time this uh, episode of the podcast airs, you will be your your Kickstarter will be up and running. Yep, and people can you know find us on the social medias. We'll be you know campaigning pretty heavily once the Kickstarter is live. I think it's a cool project, and I will be. Uh, I'll, you can put me on board, and I'm like, when it goes live, I'll uh, I'll uh, do my best to spread the word. Awesome, thanks a lot, Hank. All right, Sean, thanks a lot for being on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, and let's uh, let's talk again when you get your uh, restaurant up and running. Because what I really want to talk about at some point someday is when you got your you know your feet under you, you're, you're just you know you got your restaurant. I want to talk about just really getting geeky with finished dishes using only native ingredients because yeah. like you and i can just completely geek out yeah, you know just just cook it. to cook at some point yeah, so let's do that when you're up and running that sounds awesome all right man thanks a lot all right i'll talk to you again see ya Bye. well that's our show this week i am your host hank shaw and this is hunt gather talk the podcast of hunter angler gardener cook As usual, it would be awesome if you could subscribe to the podcast in whatever format is most comfortable for you. And a special shout-out this week to Sean Sherman's Kickstarter campaign, which is on kickstarter.com. Look up Sean Sherman, S-E-A-N-S-H-E-R-M-A-N, and look up the Sous Chef Kitchen on kickstarter.com. I hope you can support it. Thanks a lot, and I will talk to you next time. This is Hank Shaw.